47. As nothing, the bonnets all. Think you that Mrs. Somerville could have studied herself into a reputation, that the moon and stars would have condescended to smile upon her, if she had not attended their evening parties in a handsome turban, duly plumed and jeweled. Come we now to the next recorded atrocity, there jumped now upon the stage a red-haired, laughing hyena-faced, festion-coated by that, exclaiming my name is Wall. I had a substantive amendment to move to the resolution now proposed go off. Off. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Turn him out. 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 We are met in a place where religion is taught groans. Well, then, we are met where they teach the young idea how to shoot laughter. Groans. And go on. Wall. Turning to the young gents on the platform. You. Quoth Mr. Wall. Had not read history, you clerks at 16s. A week. With your gold chains and pins, red hair was first made infamous by Judasius Cariodi, hence the reporter not only shows the intensity of his Christianity, but his delicate knowledge of human character, by the fine contempt cast upon the felon locks of the speaker, red hair is doubtless the brand of providence, the mark set upon guilty man to give note and warning to his unsuspicious fellow creatures, like the scarlet light at the North Foreland, it speaks of shoals, and sands, and flats. The Emperor Commodus, who had all his previous life rejoiced in flax and locks, woke, the morning after his first contest in the arena, a red-haired man, but then, with a fine knowledge of the wholesome prejudices of the world, he turned the curse upon his head into a beauty, for he powdered it with gold dust, could Mr. Wall, of the Penny Theatre, induce the master of the mint to play his quaffer, how would the reporter fall on his knees and worship the divinity, Mr. Wall, being of the opposite faction, in addition to the unpowdered ignominy of his hair, has also the face of a hyena. This fact opens a question too vast for our one solitary page. We lack at least the amplitude of a quarto to prove that all men are fashioned, even in the womb, with features that shall hereafter beautifully harmonize with the politics of the grown creature. Now all, being ordained a poor man and a chartist, is endowed with a laughing hyena countenance. He even loses the vantage ground of our common humanity, and is sunk by his poverty and his politics to the condition of a beast, and of a most unamiable beast into the bargain. However, the vast enfolding iniquity is yet to be displayed and duly shuddered at, for all, the bite that hyena, wears a festion coat. As journalists, we trust we have our common share which is no little of human vanity. Nevertheless, with the highest private opinion of our own powers, we feel we can add nothing to the picture drawn by the reporter, the festion coat, with a tongue in every buttonhole, discourses on its own inwoven infamy. We recognize with great pleasure a growing custom on the part of political reporters to merge the orators and listeners at public meetings in their several articles of dress. This practice has doubtless originated in a most philosophical consideration of the sympathies between the outer and the inner man, and has its source in the earliest records of human life. The patriarchs rent their garments in token of the misery that lacerated their souls, then rags and tatters were ennobled by sorrow there was a deep sentiment in sackcloth and ashes. We have, however, improved upon the ignorance of primitive days, and though we still admit the covering of man to be typical of his condition of mind, we wisely keep our respect for Super Saxony, and expend contempt and ridicule on corduroy and festion. We yet hope to see the day when certain political meetings will be briefly reported as follow faded blue coat, with tarnished brass buttons, took the chair, velveteen jacket moved the first resolution, which was seconded by check shirt and ankle jacks, brown great coat, with holes in elbows, 
Move the second resolution seconded by greasy drab breeches and dirty leather gaiters. After thanks to blue coat had been moved by brown surtout and crack under both arms, the festion jackets departed. Would not this be quite sufficient? Knowing the philosophy of appearance in England, might we not by our imagination supply a truer speech to every order than could be taken down by the most faithful reporter? Cupunches pencilings. Mumbrexvii. Illustration. The new parliamentary masons. We had a plan which, from its originality, should draw down upon us the gratitude of the nation. We propose that, during the PRORGADIOLAN, at least, members of parliament, should, like beavers, build their own houses. Vidi Punch, number 14, page 162. List of the premiums awarded by the HOKHA and Kumasenivie Literary and Scientific Society, for the year 1841. First premium, management of landed property to Count Dorsey, for the most approved essay on cultivating a flower pot, and the expediency of growing Magniwanet in preference to sweet pea on the window sills the pasteboard medal of the society. Second premium, method of growing permanent whiskers, to Colonel Sithorpe, for a report of several successful experiments in laying down his own cheeks for a permanent growth of whisker, with a description of the most approved hair fence worn on the chin and the exact color adapted to all seasons the pasteboard medal and a bottle of bomb of Columbia. Third premium, improving the condition of the poor, by inventing a valuable substitute for meat, bread, vegetables, and other masticatory element, to the poor law commissioners, for their valuable essay on cheap feeding, and in account of several experiments made in the unions throughout the kingdom, by which they have satisfactorily demonstrated that a man may exist on stewed chips and sawdust also for their original receipt for making light, cheap workhouse soup, with a gallon of water and a gooseberry the pasteboard medal and a mendicity ticket, fourth premium, quantity of brains required to make a member of parliament, to Peter Borthwith, for his ingenious treatise, proving logically that a member requires no brains, instancing his own case where the deficiency was supplied by the length of his ears the pewter medal, and a copy of Enfield's speaker, fifth premium, amount of cash required by a gentleman to keep a walking stick, a pair of mustaches, and a cigar, to the Society of Law Clerks, for the best account of how fifteen shillings a week may be managed, to enable the possessor to draw a rather brisk after-office hours in Regent Street, including board and lodging for his switch and spurs, and Warren's jet for his Wellington's the tin medal and a penny Cuba. Sixth premium, fattening alderman, to Sir Peter Lorry, for a bill affair of the various vines demolished at the Lord Mayor's dinners for the last ten years also, for an account of certain experiments made to ascertain the contents of the board of aldermen at city feasts, by the application of a new regulating belt, called the gastronometer a German silver medal and a gravy spoon. Punches Review. The Memoirs of M.A.D.A. and E.L.A.F.A.R.G. The title, I think, will strike. The fashion, you know, now, is to do away with old prejudices, and to rescue certain characters from the illiberal odium with which custom has marked them. Thus we have a generous Israelite, an amiable cynic, and so on. Now, sir, I call my play the humane footpad, Sylvester D.A.G.G.R.W.O.D. Some four or five seasons since. The eccentric Buckstone produced a three-act farce, which, by dint of its after-title The School for Sympathy and of Much Highly Comic Woe, exhibited in the acting of Farron and Miss Bet, was presented to uproariously affected audiences during some score nights. The hinge of the mirth was made to turn upon the irresistible drollery of one man's running away with another man's wife, 
and the outrageous fun of the consequent suicide of the injured husband, the bonds most being most tragically humorous, and the aphorisms of the several characters facetiously concatenated of the nouns contained in the leading name of the piece, love and murder. Now this was a magnificent idea one of those brilliant efforts which cannot but tend to lift the theatre in the estimation of every man of delicacy and education. A new source of attraction was at once discovered. A vast fund of available fuel was suddenly found to recruit the cinerolent embers of the drama with all. It became evident that, after John Miller, the ordinary of Newgate was the funniest dog in the world. Manslaughter, arson, and the more practical jokes in the calendar, were already familiar to the stage. It was a refinement of the Haymarket authors to introduce those livelier sallies of Whitcrim, Khan, and Philo de Southeast. The immense coalitions of all manner of crimes and vices in the subsequent highway school, the gradual development of every unnatural tendency in the youthful Jack Shepard in other Emerty Elm work by the offer of the aforelauded comedy The Celebration, by a classic chaunt, of his reaching the pinnacle of depravity, this was the Northeast plus ultra of dramatic invention. Robbers and murderers began to be treated, after the Catholic fashion, with extreme unction, audiences were intoxicated with the new drop, sympathy became epidemic, everybody was bewildered and improved, and nobody went and threw themselves off the monument with a copy of the baleful drama in his pocket, but the magnificence of the discovery was too large to be grasped by even the gluttonous eye of the managers. The Adelphi might overflow the Surrey might quake with reiterated pitiful, still there remained over and above the feast crumbs sufficient for the badnings of other than theatrical appetites. Immediately the press gang we beg pardon. The press arose, and with a mighty throw spawned many monsters. Great drama, greater press, greatest public. Now this was all excellent well as far as it went, but still there was something wanted of more reality than the improvisations of a romancist. Ainsworth might dip his pen in the grossest epithets, Boz might dabble in the mysterious dens of Hebrew iniquity, even Bolluer might hash up to us his recollections of Street Giles's dialogue, and yet it was evident that they were all the while only shamming, only cooking up some dainty dish according to a recipe, or, as it is still frequently pronounced, a receipt, which last, with such writers, will ever be the guidepost of their track, but something more was wanted, and here it is here. In the memoirs of Marie Capel, this lady, perhaps the most remarkable woman of her age, has published a book half farce, half novel in which she treats by turns with the claptrap agony of a Bolluer, the quaint sneer of a Dickens, and the effrontery of an Ainsworth, that serious charge which employed the careful investigation of the most experienced men in France for many weeks, and which excited a degree of interest in domestic England almost unexampled in the history of foreign trials. This work is published by a gentleman who calls himself publisher in ordinary to Her Majesty, and may be procured at any booksellers by all such as have a guinea and a day's leisure at the mercy of the literary charlatan who contrived it. In the strictest confidence we would suggest, that if a treaty could be ratified with Madame Marie Capel Lafarge, we do not doubt that our nursery yay, our laundry maids would learn to spell the precious sentences, to their own great edification and that of the children placed under their charge. Our trade report. Coals are a shade blacker than they were last week, but not quite so heavy, and turnips are much lighter than they have been known for a very considerable period. Great complaints are made of the ticketing system, and persons going to purchase shawls, as they supposed, that ninepence three farthings each, are disgusted at being referred to a very small one pound sixteen marked very lightly in pencil immediately before the nine three four D, which is very large and in very black ink. 
There were several transactions of this kind during the whole morning. The depressed state of the gossamer market has long been a subject of conversation among the foreign niners who frequent the cheap coffee shops in the city, but no one knows the cause of what has taken place, nor can they exactly state what the occurrence is that they are so loudly complaining of. Bones continue to fetch a penny for two pounds, but great murmurs are heard of the difficulty of making up a pound equal to the very liberal weights which the marine storekeepers use when making their purchases, they, however, make up for it by using much lighter weights when they sell, which is so far fair and satisfactory. The arrivals in baked potatoes have been very numerous, 50 cans were entered outwards on Saturday. Relative gentility. Two ladies of Street Giles is disputing lately on the respectability of each other's family. Concluded the debate in the following way, Mrs. Doyle. Ma'am, I'd have you know that I've an uncle a banister of the law. Much about your banister, retorted Mrs. Doyle, hadn't I a first cousin a corridor in the Navy, keeping it dark. Jim Bones, a free nigger of New York, has a child so exceedingly dark that he cannot be seen on the lightest day. The gentleman's own book. Arabian Oanza knows Mutanzai for the benefit of country members to a return to our mud, or rather the trimmings. The ornaments which notify the pecuniary superiority of the wearer include chains, rings, studs, canes, watches, and purses. Chains should be of gold, and cannot be too ostentatiously displayed, for a proper disposition of these braveries is sure to induce the utmost confidence in the highly full occupants of Pagots and Robson's directory. We have seen some waistcoats so elaborately festooned, that we would stake our inkstand that the most unbelieving moneylender would have taken the personal security of the wearer without hesitation. The perfection to which mosaic work has arrived may possibly hold out a strong temptation to the thoughtless to substitute the shadow for the reality. Do not deceive yourself, an experienced eye will instantly detect the imposition, though your ornaments may be for. We will defy any true gentleman to preserve an equanimity of expression under the hint either visual or verbal that to use the language of the poet you are a man of brass. We have a faint recollection of a class of gentlemen who used to attach an heterogeneal collection of massive seals and keys to one end of a chain, and a small church clock to the other. The chain then formed a pendulum in front of their small clothes, and the dignified oscillation of the appendages was considered to distinguish the gentleman. They were also used as auxiliaries in argument, for whenever an hiatus occurred in the discussion, the speaker, by having resort to his watch chain, could frequently confound his adversary by commencing a series of rapid gyrations, but the fashion has descended to merchants, lawyers, doctors, etsway generis, who never drive bargains, ruin debtors, kill patients, etc., without having recourse to this imposing decoration. Rings are the next indicators of superfluous cash, as they are merely ornamental. They should resemble the ears, tapeworms, snakes, toads, monkeys, death's heads, and similar engaging and pleasing subjects. The more liberally the fingers are enriched, the greater the assurance that the hand is never employed in any full labor, and is consequently only devoted to the many citration of indulgences and the exhibition of those elegant productions which distinguish the highly civilized gentleman from the highly tattooed savage. Morning rings have an air of extreme respectability, for they are always suggestive of a legacy, and of the fact that you have been connected with somebody who was not buried at the expense of the parish. Studs should be selected with the greatest possible care, and in our opinion the small gold ones can only be worn by a perfect gentleman, for whilst they perform their required office. They do not distract the attention from the quality and whiteness of your linen. 
some that we have seen were evidently intended for cabinet pictures, rifle targets and breastplates, pins, these necessary adjuncts to the cravat of a gentleman had undergone a singular revolution during late years, but we confess we are admirers of the present fashion, for if it is desirable to indulge in an ornament, it is equally desirable that everybody should be gratified by the exhibition thereof, we presume that it is with this commendable feeling that pins heads whose smallness in former days became a proverb should now resemble the apex of a beetle's staff, and, as though to make assurance doubly sure, a plurality is absolutely required for the decoration of a gentleman. In these times, when political partisanship is so exceedingly violent, why not make the pins indicative of the opinions of the wearer? As the waistcoat was in the days of Fox, we could suggest some very appropriate designs, for instance, the heads of Peel and Walkley, connected by a very slight link Sithorpe and Peter Borthwick by a series of long car rings months and Disraeli cut out of very hard wood, and united by a hair chain, and many others too numerous to mention. Hamlet's soliloquy, parodied by a XXT toddler. To drink, or not to drink, that is the question. Whether tease nobler inwardly to suffer the pangs and twitchings of an easy stomach, or to take brandy toddy against the colic, and by imbibing end it. To drink, to sleep, to snore, and, by a snooze, to say we end the headache, and the morning's parching thirst that drinking's air to, tease a consummation devoutly to be wished to drink, to pay, to pay the waiter's bill, I there's the rub, for in that snipe-like bill, a stop may come, when we would shuffle off our mortal score, must give us pause, there's the respect that makes sobriety of so long date, for who could bear to hear the glasses ring in concert clear the chairman's ready toast the pops of outdrawn corks the hip hurrah, the eloquence of claret and the songs, which often through the noisy revel break, when a man might his quietus make with a full bottle, who would sober be, or sip weak coffee through the live-long night, but that the dread of being laid upon that stretcher by policemen born, on which the reveler reclines, puzzles me much, and makes me rather tipple ginger beer, than fly to brandy, or to thus poverty doth make us temperance men, try our best sympathy, it is a fact, when the deputation of the distressed manufacturers waited upon Sir Robert Peel to represent to him their destitute condition, that the right honorable baronet declared he felt the deepest sympathy for them. This is all very fine but we fear greatly, if Sir Robert should be inclined to make a commercial speculation of his sympathy, that he would go into the market with the man of habit. I meet with men of this character very frequently, and though I believe that the stiff formality of the past age was more congenial than the present to the formation and growth of these peculiar beings, there are still a sufficient number of the species in existence for the philosophical cosmopolite to study and comment upon. A true specimen of a man of habit should be an old bachelor, for matrimony deranges the whole clockwork system upon which he piques himself. He could never endure to have his breakfast delayed for one second to indulge his soul's far dearer part with a prolonged morning dream, and he dislikes children, because the noisy urchins make a point of tormenting him wherever he goes. The man of habit has a certain hour for all the occupations of his life, he allows himself twenty minutes for shaving and dressing, fifteen for breakfasting, in which time he eats two slices of toast, drinks two cups of coffee, and swallows two eggs boiled for two and a half minutes by an infallible chronometer. After breakfast he reads the newspaper, but lays it down in the very heart and pith of a clever article on his own side of the question, the moment his time is up. He has even been known to leave the theater at the very moment of the denouement of a deeply interesting play rather than exceed his limited hour by five minutes. He will be out of temper all day, 
If he does not find his head on its proper nail and his cane in its allotted corner, he chooses a particular walk, where he may take his prescribed number of turns without interruption, for he would prefer suffering a serious inconvenience rather than be obliged to quicken or slacken his pace to suit the speed of a friend who might join him. My Uncle Simon was a character of this cast. I could take it on my conscience to assert that, every night for the forty years preceding his death, he had one foot in the bed on the first stroke of eleven o'clock, and just as the last chime had told, that he was enveloped in the blankets to his chin, I had known him discharge a servant because his slippers were placed by his bedside for contrary feet, and I had won a wager by betting that he would turn the corner of a certain street at precisely three minutes before ten in the morning. My uncle used to frequent a club in the city, of which he had become the oracle. Precisely at eight o'clock he entered the room took his seat in a leather-backed easy chair in a particular corner read a certain favorite journal drank two glasses of rum toddy smoked four pipes and was always in the act of putting his right arm into the sleeve of his greatcoat to a return home. As the clock struck ten, the cause of my uncle's death was as singular as his life was whimsical. He went one night to the club and was surprised to find his seat occupied by a tall dark-browed man who smoked a meerschaum of prodigious size in solemn silence. Numerous hints were thrown out to the stranger that the seat had by prescriptive right and ancient custom become the property of my uncle. He either did not or would not understand them, and continued to keep his possession of the leather-backed chair with the most imperturbable sang-froid. My uncle in despair took another seat, and endeavored to appear as if nothing had occurred to disturb him, but he could not dissimulate. He was pierced to the heart and my uncle left the club half an hour before his time, he returned home went to bed without winding his watch and the next morning he was found lifeless in his bed. Unches political economy. The subject of political economy is becoming so general a portion of education, that it will doubtless soon be introduced at the infant schools among the other eccentric evolutions or playful worlds of Mr. Wilder Spin, that it is the fashion to comprehend nothing, but to have a smattering of everything. We beg leave to smatter our readers with a very thin layer of political economy. In the first place, political means political, and economy signifies economy, at least when taken separately, but put them together, and they express all kinds of extravagance. Political economy contemplates the possibility of laboring without work, eating without food, and living without the means of subsistence. Social, or individual economy, teaches to live within our means, Political economy calls upon us to live without them. In the debates, when more than usual time has been wasted in talking the most extravagant stuff, ten to a one that there has been a good deal of political economy. If you bother a poor devil who is dying of want, and speak to him about consumption, it is probably political economy that you will have addressed to him. If you talk to a man sinking with hunger about floating capital, you will no doubt have given him the benefit of a few hints in political economy, while if to a wretching tattered rags you broach the theory of rent, he must be an ungrateful beast indeed if he does not appreciate the blessings of political economy. That labor is wealth forms one of the most refreshing axioms of this delicious science, and if brought to the notice of a man breaking stones on the road, he would perhaps wonder where his wealth might be while thinking of his labor, but he could not question your proficiency in political economy. In fact, it is the most political and most economical science in the world if it can only be made to achieve its object, which is to persuade the hard-working classes that they are the richest people in the universe, for their labor gives value, and value gives wealth, 
But who gets the value and the wealth is a consideration that does not fall within the province of political economy. There is another branch of the subject at which we shall merely glance, but one hint will open up a wide field of observation to the student. The branch to which we allude is the tremendous extent to which political economy is carried by those who interfere so much in politics with so very little political knowledge, and who consequently display a most surprising share of political economy, as a very little goes a great way, and particularly as the most diminutive portion of knowledge communicated by ourselves island like the one small pill constituting a dose, much more efficacious than the forty number ones and fifty number twos of the mere quacks. We close for the present our observations on political economy, on the KBIB. There can be no doubt as to the prima facie evidence of the hostile intentions of the destroyed American steamer, with respect to the disaffected on Navy Island, as, from the acknowledged inquisitiveness of the gentler sex, there can be no doubt that Caroline would have a natural predilection for last new sayings, come, none of your raillery, as the stagecoach indignantly said to the steam engine, that, strain, again, as the poor law commissioner generously said to the water gruel sieve, I paid very dear for my whistle, as the steam engine emphatically said to the railroad, peel forever, as the church bells joyously said to conservative hearts, there is at present a man in New York whose temper is so exceedingly hot that he invariably reduces all his shirts to tinder, Unches theater, the maid of honor, the Adolphi, correspondent from Paris, has favored that theater with an adaptation of scribes, Verdo which he has called, the maid of honor. Everybody must remember that, last year, the trifling affair of the British government was settled by the far more momentous consideration of who should be ladies of the bedchamber. The Parisians, seeing the dramatic capabilities of this incident, put it into a farce, resting the whole affair upon the shoulders of a former queen whose court was similarly circumstanced. This is the piece which Mr. Yates has had the daring to get done into English, and transplanted into Spain and interspersed with embroidery, confectionary, and a Spanish sentence, the last judiciously entrusted to that accomplished linguist, Mr. John Saunders, soon after the rising of the curtain, we behold the figure of Mr. Yates displayed to great advantage in the dress usually assigned to Noodle and Doodle in the tragedy of Tom Thumb, he represents the Count Olivares, and the head of a political party the opposition, the court faction having for its chief the Duchess of Albafures who being mistress of the queen's robes is of course her favorite, for the millinery department of the country which can boast of a queen regnant is of far higher importance than foreign or financial affairs, justice, police, or war consequently. The chief of the wardrobe is far more exalted and better beloved than a mere premier or secretary of state. The count is planning an intrigue, the agents of which are to be Henrico, a court page, and Felicia, a court milliner, not being able to make much of the page. He turns over a new leaf, and addresses himself to the dressmaker, so, after a few preliminary hems, he draws out the thread of his purpose to her, and cuts out an excellent pattern for her guidance, which if she implicitly follow will assuredly make her a maid of honor. A comedy without mystery is punch without a joke, Yates without a speech to the audience on a first night, or Bartley's pathos without a pocket handkerchief. The court page soon opens the book of imbroglio. He is made a captain of the Queen's Guard by some unknown hand, he has always been protected by the same unseen benefactor, who, as if to guard him from every ill that flashes heir to, showers on him his or her favors upon condition that he never marries. Happy man, exclaims the Count, not at all, answers the other, I am in love with Felicia. Nobody is surprised at this, 
for it is a rule amongst dramatists never to forbid the bands until the band, poor devil, is on the steps of the altar. Henrico, now a captain, goes off to flash his sword, meets with an insult, and by the greatest good luck kills his antagonist in the precincts of the palace, so that if he be not hanged for murder, his fortune is made. The victim is the count's cousin, to whom he is next of kin. Good heavens, ejaculates Olivares, you have made yourself a criminal, and me a duke. Horrible. By the way, the same Henrico, as performed by that excellent swimmer in the waterpiece, Mr. Spencer Ford, forms a very entertaining character, his imperturbable calmness while uttering the heart-stirring words, assigned by the author to his own description of the late affair of honorable assassination, was highly edifying to the philosophic mind, the pleasing and amiable tones in which he stated how irretrievably he was ruined, the dulcet sweetness of the farewell to his heart's adored, the mathematical exactitude of his position while embracing her, the cool deliberation which marked his exit offered a picture of calm stoicism just on the point of tumbling over the precipice of destruction not to be equaled not, at least, since those halcyon dramatic days when Osbaldiston least, 